You're listening to The Jazz Session with Jason Crane. Since 2007, the original jazz interview podcast. Basic hip. Howdy, pals, and welcome to a surprise, unscheduled, spur-of-the-moment bonus episode of The Jazz Session. This is going to go out to uh, paying members early, and then later on, and these two terms are relative and fairly meaningless, later on it will go out to uh, the general public. I am joined once again, as I often am, on these surprise bonus episodes by uh, two of my dear friends and uh, two wonderful musicians, uh, drummer Aaron Stabell from uh, Rochester, New York. Aaron, hello. Hey Jason, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm super happy to to talk to you. Also, here is uh, saxophonist Patrick McCurry from Auburn, Alabama. Hi, Patrick. Here I am. Hi, guys. So we are going to talk about formative albums. We each picked an album that helped form who we are as either music fans or uh, music uh, listeners or musicians. And uh, we're each just going to kind of talk about those albums a little bit and talk to each other about them and maybe talk about uh, why they affected us and and that kind of thing. And and I'm going to go first just to kind of set the table here. And the album that I picked to talk about is the very first record I remember, uh, the very first album I can remember caring about. It's called Kenton in Hi-Fi. It's a Stan Kenton album that came out in uh, 1956 it was also recorded in 1956 um it was recorded out in hollywood by kenton's kind of you know classic screaming trumpets band at the time which included maynard ferguson in it and uh, pete candoli and sam noto um, there's all kinds of amazing people on this record vito musso who just burns the tenor sax all over the place uh bill perkins is on here mel lewis is on the drums it's just uh, Carl Fontana on trombone, Milt Bernhardt, and of course, Stan on piano. And uh, Stan wrote most of the music, though not all of it, some of it. Uh, Pete Rugolo wrote one track. There's a couple standards, a couple other things. But um, this record was in my grandfather's collection. My grandpa was a jazz musician when he was uh, younger. This would have been in the in the 20s and early 30s um, in Western Massachusetts, kind of played in you know, I guess what would have been at the time, like dance bands that played for for local shindigs and that kind of thing. Um, he played clarinet and soprano saxophone. And uh, and I also play soprano saxophone. And uh, my grandpa was a, a really keen music listener. And he was one of those people who um, when we would listen to the radio and uh, this was back in the day when you could hear big band music on the radio, um, which was true, you know, even when I was a kid, we would listen to the radio and. Uh, big band track would come on and he would within about a, a bar he would tell you who it was what song it was he could identify all the soloists he was that kind of guy i am not that kind of guy i cannot i cannot do that uh, we had talked at one point about doing kind of a blindfold test in this episode and there's a blindfold test for me would be meaningless because unless it's like john coltrane there's about four musicians four jazz musicians who sound i can identify 
But anyway, the reason this album was formative for me, first of all, it's the first album I can really remember loving. This was before I listened to any rock music or anything. I mostly grew up with my grandfather's taste in music. But it's also the first album I can really remember learning. And by learning, I don't mean learning how to play, because when I was listening to this album first, I didn't even play an instrument. And I still can't play any of this album now, all these years later. But I just remember learning all the notes. Like I could sing all the parts on this album or most of the parts. I could certainly sing all the melodies and the little counter melodies and stuff like that. I knew all the drum fills and all those things. And I just remember as a kid thinking, I kind of want to know like everything about the sounds on this record. And it was the first time I ever really felt that way. And in the subsequent years, there's a lot of music that I would really dissect and get to know every note of. Um, but this was the first time that the idea of wanting to do that ever even occurred to me. And I remember many years later, I, uh, I interviewed Maynard Ferguson and I told him that he was on the first record I ever loved. And I don't know if that he cared all that much. I think he was, I don't have a recording of that interview, so I can't actually remember anything that he said. Um, but you know, it's the kind of thing it's like telling an actor that you have run into in a restaurant that you loved them and such and such. Um, I'm sure he was pleased, but I just remember thinking from my point of view at that time, like, you know, when I was five years old, I was sitting on my grandparents' living room floor and they had one of those record players that was inside a big piece of furniture where you lifted up the top and the record was in there. And I just remember thinking all those years later, sitting in a studio in Rochester, New York, like this guy played on that record and connecting kind of my professional life back to the first record I ever cared about in this way that that just really meant a lot to me. And I think... I'm not going to say without this record, I wouldn't have become the music fan that I am. But this record absolutely opened the door to the kind of music fan I became. I'm sure some other record would have filled its place had it not been there. But this was the first record I ever loved, the first record I ever wanted to learn. And to this day, in fact, I just listened to it this afternoon again. Uh, I still know every note of this record and I still think of my grandpa and I still can picture myself there on the floor in front of that giant piece of furniture with a record playing inside it. And it's just uh, absolutely wrapped in these kind of golden, beautiful memories. And that's why this is a formative record for me. There's lots of other records in my life that are important records that helped introduce me to other genres and musicians who would mean a lot to me. Uh, but this record is where it started for me. This is like the ground zero of my of my music listening. And uh, all these years later, I still love it. Um, so I don't know, Patrick. Uh, well, I guess I'll just open this up if there's anything. If Have either of you guys ever heard this record? Or are either of you fans of Stan Kenton or any reaction to this album or Stan or anything? I, I own... The LP. I don't know where I got it, but I, ha I have it. And I think actually, Jason, you were here at my house one time and saw it. And you said, I, I think you like looked at it and go, that's my favorite album in the whole world. But I've never, I think I've gotten it since my, uh, I've already started the sentence, but I hate to think of the people that listen to this, that might listen to this podcast. But I put my, my record players is not out. Like I don't, I don't have way to listen to vinyl right now because it's been like 
packed up in the attic for years. And, um, and it's just, so I know I haven't really, I never got a chance to listen to that and didn't transfer it to, you know, all the, uh, dozen other possible ways you can listen to it at any given moment in your, in your life. But I did listen to it today. And my first, um, my, uh, I have a formative experience with this music in the sense that some of the earliest, earliest big band music that I play, like as a, as a teenager and playing with like old guy, big bands and this Auburn Knights, which is this professional big band down here. That's been going for, you know, uh, 90 years or something. I was going to say um, going since before this record was made. Right, right. Exactly. Uh, you know, we played things like intermission riff and, um, uh, and that maybe one of maybe one maybe one of these others uh but sort of i guess they got into the sort of canon of of just sort of dance band music which and then i was i guess i was surprised when i listened through the entire album today at how much sense it made that not many of these others really did get into that sort of regular just kind of dance hall canon of big band music because it's this is classical music. This is, Oh yeah. I mean, because this is not, yeah. Stan, like he had hits. I mean, he had hits all through the forties and fifties and even into the sixties, but he also had these massive projects of strings and big band and just sometimes just strings. And these really like, you know, Stravinsky for big band and, you know, all this stuff that he was into that, uh, I mean, he also was really into education. He created one of the first jazz camps and, um, you know, was the stuff that he was doing. Some of it was aimed at dancers in dance halls, but a lot of it was just aimed at listeners. And I think when you listen to this record, you definitely get you get at least a piece of the the weirder side of Stan or the more, as I think, as you rightly put it, the more classical side of Stan. There's not any super atonal stuff on here, although there are some really close trumpet harmonies and stuff, but, um, but for every one of those, like, you know, artistry jumps that you get, or, you know, intermission riff, you get some other thing that has these, you know, sweeping piano lines and bits of strings behind them. And yeah, so it is definitely this album, I think is, was his chance to kind of make a really beautiful recording of music that he'd been playing for the last like 10 years or so. Um, and that he hadn't necessarily had a chance to, to put down in stereo at the times. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever heard this exact one. I feel like Stan Kenton is a hole in my listening uh, experience I, for some reason. And like a lot of stuff that in my brain, I don't even know if this is considered like West coast or not, but in my brain it is. And a lot of stuff that was like West coast stuff. I never really checked out as much as some other things. So like my big band, Stan yeah oh really interesting yeah. yeah my big band canon is like basie and ellington mostly and then like some Thad and mel as well as i got a little bit older so i have not checked a lot of this out but i don't know why because i remember in high school one of my band directors had like a stan kenton record he was a trombone player and so uh, he loved things with loud trombones, which apparently this Kenton record had. I just <laughs> I remember, guess. I remember that really clearly. Him being like, "You should check this out." Says loud trombones, and I was like, "Oh yeah, <laughs> not exactly what I was into at the time or ever." But, um, <laughs> but I thought that 
I do remember that and like thinking, you know, like he was a person whose opinion I respected, so it must be good. So I don't know. I've just never got to it. Um, but I should, you know, I like even some of my teachers in school and stuff played in Stan Kenton's band. And I just, I don't know, it's a lapse for me, but I more importantly love your story about your family and being able to, you know, connect with your grandpa. Like that's a really special thing. My grandpa was a, a jazz pianist and his his person like Stan Kenton for for your grandpa was Art Tatum. And he has had a great story about how one time he got to meet Art and like came over to somebody's friend's house and got to meet him and hear him play. And so that was always special to me in that kind of same way, Jason. So I really oh, that's very that cool. resonates for me for sure. My grandfather managed uh, uh, an underwear uh, manufacturing plant. And I don't have any idea what kind of music he listened to. Never connected to him or either one of my grandfathers in any kind of musical way. That would have been really awesome. In what town was your grandfather managing the plant? Uh, Scottsboro, Alabama. Okay. And Aaron, was your grandpa that you were just talking about, was he Buffalo-based? Yeah, where I grew up in Orchard Park. Okay. he was. Yeah, for most okay, of it. But cool. he's also also the grandpa who bought the camp that you've been to before, too. And oh, that's up. the same. Okay, same one. Same okay, one. great. Yeah. Great, great, great. Uh, so, Patrick, maybe I'll toss it to you. What did you bring to the table here? Yeah. I, just, I mean, I don't know how different it could be from Stan Kenton. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but mine is... <laughs> Master of puppets, by the way. Right. <laughs> Mine is um Boogie on Reggae Woman. <laughs> just the single. It's not, it's not too far. <laughs> it's just not too single. far off. But I'm not trying to make like any kind of uh point like I was with that one. Um this one was formative, I think, in a different way. I mean, definitely, not even I think. It was formative for me in a, a very different way from um from Jason's story in that so in night it came out in 19 you have yet to say what album it is or are you leading up oh, yeah. to it in a okay so this is way. a this is a studio album by uh quincy jones or whatever his name is um by quincy jones <laughs> the great producer and um it, it called back on the block and it, it is such it is it's so much like before when i said oh i want to do this one i mentioned it on a previous one of our previous episodes back when i couldn't remember what quincy jones's name was and um and we were uh there were we were talking about some uh our car friendly playlist and there was a track on there that had um some rap in it and i was thinking of sort of my first it and this really must have been one of the earliest examples of jazz and this is different this is not exactly jazz musicians except quincy jones certainly could be considered that um but making jazz with hip-hop in it it's sort of more the other way it's just this huge mashup of this the most baroque sort of sounding not Baroque as in class as in, you know, classical music, but just so much going on. This album is a mixture like of, of hip hop and R and B with it 
almost literally has a hundred different players on it and 70, 80%, I was counting them the list of personnel on Wikipedia and like they are, they're big enough to wear it, but 70% of them or 80% of them have their own Wikipedia pages. So it's like, these are not, it wasn't you just said there aren't many jazz musicians on this, but like, I mean, Ella Fitzgerald's on this and Miles Davis and Joe Zawinul right. and Dizzy Gillespie like when we and were Sarah Vaughn. Talking and... about it. It's, it's There's a few jazz we musicians on here. It. Casually, I said, those, the people that I remembered was this one, this pretty much this one or two tracks where it had, um, you know, I remember Diz and I remembered uh, uh, Moody. But then as I was listening through it again, I was like, God, there are so many. And like, this is, it's historic. This, the, what I found out, what I didn't know when I was, well, obviously I didn't know that it was Ella and Sarah Vaughn's last project that they recorded on when, yes. it, when I had the it. And but the last it, project they recorded on also has Big Daddy Kane on it, which I just think is like, right. <laughs> if you're going to go out, go out Big Daddy style. He's on everything. He is on everything. <laughs> so good. Yeah. Well, it's a, I played this album over and over again, and it was nothing like anything else and anything that I was, because 1991, I was in the middle of my undergraduate jazz degree happening. So all of everything we were listening to was very mainstream jazz, um, progressive uh, I wasn't getting into anything niche. I wasn't going back, you know, into too much traditional stuff. I wasn't getting into, you know, into any of this. It was getting even farther away from fusion than, than when I started. But this one just went over and over again. And there's something about with me, um, there's always been something about projects like this. Like I've always been more interested in like or as a kid in these like all-star football games that brought in players from every single team in in one league and playing against players from all these other different teams in another league just to watch this weird mashup of all these different people and thinking about wow that's really cool i wonder how that works and going back and listening to this album now it i don't know that it holds up i mean there are things that i heard this time that i had no memory of like this setembro song is uh there's a little like a Brazilian ballad in here that um, that's really pretty that I don't really remember, but I remember other ones in here. Um, uh, some of these other tracks are that have, and so and there's something about, there was something to me about having pop music in this, this one, something like five Grammys in 1991. There was something to me about having popular music like, validate my choice, my artistic choices. Like I needed, for some reason, I was always, you know, I loved that Phil Woods played a solo in um, the song, um, don't, uh, what, is, what was the song? Don't go changing that, don't go changing oh, yeah, song. Oh yeah, yeah, just um, the way you are by Billy Joel. Who, yeah, just the way you are, yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, and didn't, I don't know, if, well, you know, every once in a while you'd hear this, a jazz musician would show up with a solo and some pop tune and it would always make me feel oh, okay see this is okay i don't know what i why i needed that but this like this album had like everybody it had dizzy gillespie it had it there's you know it had three four five seconds of miles davis it has um dizzy was on is on a couple tracks uh people like james moody like say sarah vaughn all these great like and just and 
historic jazz musicians. It didn't really have, I mean, Joe Zawinul was on it probably because they played, they, because Birdland is on here, an arrangement of Birdland is on here. I don't know, um, but it was, it was probably the youngest of all of those legendary quote-unquote jazz musicians on there but it but everybody was legendary at the time all the r&b you know ray charles is on here uh shaka khan and all these big r&b and pop artists of the time these black um recording artists at the time everybody was huge and quincy jones like this was his first project and i had never known of any this is the first time that i knew that was like how how popular was it at the time for a producer to make an album like for it to be under the producer's name i don't even know the history of that kind of uh that kind of project any do you have any idea like at, yeah like, i don't, I don't like now I don't feel now like it's more common super common i mean i think this is yeah. i think it's pretty rare that i think it's pretty quincy jones is also a musician i mean he'd been in he'd been in sure. bands and stuff but um I think Quincy is one of the rarer producers who is kind of culturally famous for producing things, except if you get into the world of hip hop. And then I think all right. bets are off exactly. because producers, then they developed a whole new language and a whole new role. But yeah, I yeah. think outside of that world, I can't think of a ton of people who are as famous as Quincy Jones and primarily not famous for singing or playing anything, but for just causing albums to happen, you know, maybe writing the music, arranging the music, bringing the musicians together. But, uh, but generally speaking, not performing, although he does do some, he does do some stuff on here, but. Yeah, but it was, this one was an outlier for me. I mean, in, in a huge way, there were, I mean, there were huge, there were big hits from this album that made it um, um, very high up the, you know, up the pop charts and certainly R&B charts and things like that. There's not really, except I guess in the, there's not really even a jazz tune. I can't even like make a, make a case for anything on here being <laughs> jazz, even though it has all these great jazz musicians playing these very little short solos. And Herbie Hancock plays uh, some extended solos and Zawinul does too. But it's not, it's not even like that Stevie, you know, like, Boogie on reggae woman is not it's not this it's all very highly produced just so much going on at the same time and everything is very different from everything else and it's really weird to me it's like I want to explore it and see why it was so much a part of my I think about it all the time but I don't play it all the time this is not the same thing as Jason you Jason I have records that I that I listen to and can sing every note but this is certainly not one of them, but this was on repeat over and over again um, for a good period of my formative years. I don't know how it affected my artistry, my playing and my choices for, you know, repertoire and the things that I did after that, unless it just sort of started, you know, opening my mind to the existence of other, <laughs> the, the, the relevance, I guess, of other kinds of music. I don't know, but it really, it somehow it, to hear to hear Diz and Miles and all these guys playing on this essentially a pop music album somehow for reasons I can't explain exactly was validating for me and I, and think I cannot recommend highly enough for folks who are listening to this that you go to Wikipedia and open up the back on the block entry and just uh, scroll down to personnel because yeah. it is 
it is in- literally insane. I mean, this album yeah. has Jesse Jackson on it and Ice. <laughs> it has Miles Davis and Cool Modi on it. It has Al Jarreau and Sarah Vaughn on it. I mean, it is Al B. Sure is on here. Luther Vandro, Barry White, Dion Warwick and Herbie Hancock and Miles Davis and Joe Zawinul. It is it is it's it is absolutely makes no sense whatsoever that this even exists. And no, the same guy who made it also made uh, he produced, you know, like it's my party and I'll cry if I want to. That's Quincy Jones. And so is Thriller and really? so is Off the Wall and Sinatra at the Sands. Sinatra at the Sands. Yeah, that's I mean, right. that's right. All this dude. I don't even know Quincy Jones. I mean, he's been nominated for like 80 Grammy awards. He's won 28. Uh, you know, he's been doing stuff for 70 years. Um, you know, his daughter was on the office. I mean, this guy is like responsible <laughs> for so much stuff that exists in pop culture. He was married to Nastasia Kinski. Yeah. It, Qu- Quincy Jones's life is, it is, I think it's unrepeatable really. Like, I think it is, he's, he yeah. is just that guy of the tw- late 20th and early 21st century. And there's not going to be another, that that guy i don't think there are people who reach into as many areas of commercially successful music um as quincy jones did i i could be wrong about that i'm saying this off the top of my head but he just his career seems unrepeatable there are certainly hugely famous producers who've made lots of hits and songwriters who've written songs for all kinds of artists and had big hits with them on the charts but a guy who spans from you know Frank Sinatra to Leslie Gore to Michael Jackson to Jesse Jackson to uh, th- this modern era right now is, I mean, I just think it's it's kind of astounding that he's even real. According to Wikipedia, his he has ancestors that fought for the Confederacy in the Civil War, and he's related to George Washington. Well, there you go. See. <laughs> Yeah, he d- he doesn't seem real. It's he, everything. He's just he's yeah, been everything. Thing. No, he just doesn't seem real. <laughs> wow. Like if you said, if you just described to a person, if you know, you tried to make up like a character in your novel who had who had encountered all of these people, not just encountered, like he wasn't like a photographer for the rich and famous, but a guy who like had the effect on the careers of the people Quincy Jones had the effect on. If you try to just make that up, they somebody, your editor would say, all right, let's just tell him that down. It's too over the top. Yeah. It's, not, exactly. it's not real. That can't it's be, like a, right, that can't be it's real. A, some kind of parody. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. Not. So yeah, uh, again, uh, you know, Patrick, you commented that you didn't think the album held up all that well. I got to say the personnel list on the Wikipedia entry, it holds up like, like a motherfucker. So I cannot sure. recommend <laughs> highly enough, even if you don't listen to a note of this record and you should probably listen to some notes of this record because it's wild. Yeah. But even if you don't listen to this record, you absolutely have to go to Wikipedia uh, as soon as this episode is over and just read through the personnel list. Cause it is, especially if you are of a certain age, um, I, I my age is quite convenient because it is, perfectly in the wheelhouse of all of these artists. Uh, But yeah, if you're of a certain age, you will know every name on here and you will say to yourself, yeah, how did that happen exactly? So. Yeah. And just to hear those little one after in uh, the jazz corner of the world where uh, jazz corner of the world, is it, I thought it was world, but I'm looking at Wikipedia. It says word. Is that, is that just a typo? Anyway. um, uh, Just to hear like the little, 
snippets of a solo by Diz and solo by Miles and a little bit of a, just a little bit of a scat by Ella and one by Sarah Vaughn and this and that. And just a little, all these little bitty sounds of these people. And I just imagine them walking into a, you know, imagine Dizzy walking into the studio one day, spending like 10 minutes in there and leaving and, and, and Miles, like Dizzy shows up on a couple of tracks, but Miles, th- that's it. Like this one little track, he plays this <laughs> really just sublime, you know, 24 notes or so. And that's it. You know, you know, he didn't, that's all he did that day. And yeah. Oh and it, yeah. 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 For, four minutes. Yeah. For $10,000 or whatever. Set up and yeah. paid nineteen. Yeah. I thought there must be with a with like a hundred people on this record. I thought there's got to be somebody on here that I've interviewed before, uh, and there is one. Um, Bobby <laughs> oh, McFerrin is, is on this record, oh. and I've interviewed Bobby wow. McFerrin. But uh, yeah, uh, the guys from Toto are on this record. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, D- David Page, Steve Porcaro, uh, oh, Steve yeah. Lukather. Yeah, so like the band, the and David Page's dad is Marty Page, who was famous a big band leader and uh, made, right. you know, art yeah. pepper plus 11. And yeah, just the pedigree of this, re- it's this record is like very white. If you put this record at the center of some sort of chart of all music, <laughs> this record is yeah. like two, two degrees of separation removed from all other music ever created by, by human beings. <laughs> it's, it's kind of amazing. That's true. Yeah. Wild. Uh, Aaron Lou Gehrig is on that record. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Lou Gehrig. Walt Whitman does a couple bars on here, which is weird because he's been dead like a hundred years on this record. Anthony Bourdain does this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Zendaya's on here, and she wouldn't be born for another 25 years. So it's really fantastic. Who did you say right there, Aaron? Steven Seagal. I thought you said Steven Seagal. Yeah. Oh, can we start? We let's start some kind of rumor. Actually, all it would really take, because this record has so much kind of like spoken wordy stuff on it, all it would really take is us laying a bit of Steven Seagal interview footage over this, the audio right. from it, and it would just tell people, yeah, this record has not only does, it has both Ella Fitzgerald and Steven Seagal on it. Uh, yeah, all right. We could add it to the list in Wikipedia ourselves. Right. And yeah, it's totally. Nobody editable. would question it. If if before this interview is over, if I don't see Steven Seagal's name in this list, I'm be very disappointed. <laughs> I'm only not doing it because I'm trying to concentrate. Uh, so, uh, Aaron, let me uh, turn things over to you. What yeah. uh, what have you got? Well, I chose a record that's very different from either of the two that you chose. Good. Uh, mine is Excavation by Ben Maunder, the great guitar player. And uh, it's a record from 2000. So... It's pretty old already and feels really new to me still. And I chose this record because uh, we talked about formative experiences. And for me, when I started playing jazz, I studied a lot of the things that kind of everyone else probably studies. I listened to a lot of Art Blakey and a lot of, you know, the Miles cooking, relaxing, working records and, you know, like Steven Seagal stuff and just, (laughs) <laughs> really tried to immerse myself in the tradition <laughs> after the miles records are good i don't know why you guys are laughing i think those are <laughs> so but then when i when i went to college i had really kind of a very traditional um listening 
background, which was the right thing to do for me at that point, you know, but when I got to school, um, there was this really cool sort of counterculture, I guess you would say within the jazz department and some of the, like Ralph Alessi had just been teaching at Eastman and Michael Caine had been teaching at Eastman and had kind of fostered this, um, I guess, uh, what's that? The actor, Michael Caine. Right. Is he the one in Austin Powers? (laughs) Oh, is that's, he? He might be. Yeah, I, I don't I'm know. not sure. Yeah, that's the one. And so, um, they had sort of inspired students to be into like more modern stuff, you know. So I remember, um, three really different um, evenings, but where I listened to records that changed a lot of the way I thought about things. One was, uh, the No Doubt record called Rock Steady, because I really didn't listen to a lot of pop music as a kid. Only when I thought it would help me get a girlfriend, which failed miserably every single time. (laughs) Um, So I listened to that record and thought like, oh, this is great. And then I listened to this Ben Maunder record. And then I listened to Bjork Vespertine. And those three, probably like within the first couple months of being in college, I listened to those three things with friends who I thought were going to like feed me good information, you know? And so they all really went on to be pretty transformative records in my life, I would say. So this album, this Ben Ronder, I don't know how popular it is with other people, but within my small world uh, in 2001, when I started school, this was like the greatest thing ever. And so much so that we somehow got the band from this record to come to Eastman and do a concert or a masterclass or some kind of combination thereof. Um, So it was really cool to not only hear the music and really love it, but then to get to meet the people who had made it, which at the time was especially like that was nothing like had ever happened really in high school or anything. So it it felt like a really big deal. So Ben Maunders, the guitar player, and he wrote almost all the music except for You Are My Sunshine, which is the last track. And then Theo Blackman is the vocalist. Schoolie Sverison is on electric bass and Jim Black is the drummer. And I had never heard anything like this before. And I still really haven't heard very much that's like it. Um, Ben's music tends to have some, a lot of really lengthy compositions. So sometimes I don't listen to the whole record of things. A lot of times I don't, I can only make it through part, you know, with the way, life can be and you don't always have a full hour in this case 73 minutes so if you're in that situation i recommend starting with track two through track five so ludius pangolin uh is track two and then that's kind of like a warm-up for track three which is uh, and that's a sorry that's a palm motion tune by the way and then allenville is this like 15 minute long epic you know, it feels almost like a like a TV show where you have like three different acts that take place during the song. It's like really broken up into different chunks, but everything in the writing holds together so, so well. Like you're always if you're listening close, you always hear things come back. And even though a lot of times it's very, very um, esoteric, you know, uh, angular melodies, a lot of it, I think, is 12 tone based. Um, but it's still like somehow very tuneful and very almost singable still. Um, so that's that's like one thing that I love about it is the compositions. Um, I also think that there's a level of virtuosity on this record that is almost 
uh, impossible to hear anything like it. Like Ben Monder has control over the guitar uh, greater than anybody I can think of. Um, and I have friends who play guitar who would testify to the same thing. Like he just totally has full command over the instrument, no matter how angular, or how awkward uh, the stuff that he writes is it's incredible. And then Theo Blackman sings a lot of these things in unison with Ben where like, that's even more impressive because like, it's, you know, leaping over an octave sometimes. And he's just like totally nailing it completely. It's amazing. Yeah. Just really an, an incredible stuff. And then the, the rhythm section for lack of a better term with the bass and drums, you know, sometimes there's a lot of this record where there is no bass or drums at all. Uh, a lot of solo guitar moments, but when they do come in, um, the energy is totally incredible. Like just so much power and so much energy from these guys um, and really challenging music. I mean, you know, you can, the charts are published. You can buy a book of them and uh, I've checked it out and like, you know, just meter changes everywhere and tempos that are really fast and just it's not something that you can really try to recreate. I don't think uh, unless you practice for a really long time. So I love those things. And, you know, then I kind of thought about it as I went on in life and looked back a little bit and realized that Ben Maunder is really like a common thread through a lot of the music that I like and still like, um, you know, he plays in this group, which I think is great. Um, but now he's in like the bad plus as a, as of kind of recently, which is some music that I really like. He plays in Maria Schneider's band on, on things that I've loved for a really long time. Um, he plays with Tony Malaby, who is another one of my heroes. So he's kind of like it just in the same way that uh, kind of like how we talked about Quincy Jones, kind of like having all these different people involved in his project. Ben is involved in all of these different projects that I really hold in high regard so it makes sense that this was kind of like my first introduction to his music um and my first introduction into really like anything beyond the traditional you know kind of blue note 60s vibe um and it you know changed the trajectory for me whereas this is really the stuff that i like the best still now um and i listened to a little bit of it today you know to do a little homework and it's still just holds up so well it's so good um each composition is like its own you know beautiful moment so i highly recommend it and like i said if you can only get to a little bit of it just that first four or five tunes um really gives you a good sense and if you can only listen to one uh track five which is called hatchet face 16 minutes and 29 seconds and then you like might throw up afterwards it's just so so, so ridiculous <laughs> for a variety of reasons like you know the the it's just a journey it's just, it's just like, the sound of a body being chopped up for 16 yeah minutes. which i love you know yeah 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 um it's it's not even anything like gross it's just it's just the it's just so impressive all the ways that i kind of already laid out it's all uh, encapsulated in that one track. I think it's really amazing. So give it a shot. Give it a listen. Um, oh. Just yeah. to kind of gauge um, kind of where this falls, like in, in serious music is uh, it has, has been played with big daddy Kane at all. Uh, I believe that he ha has not, but I did hear that he was related to George Washington. <laughs> okay, perfect. All right, then I'll, we'll let it go. We'll let it go. So, I don't know. Um, actually it's possible that, 
you know, who knows? Theo Blackman has done a lot of interesting things in his career. Maybe <laughs> that is true. There might be a big daddy Kane totally connection in there. Possible. I will say uh, oh, of God. the people that Aaron mentioned who are on this record, uh, Theo is the only one who's been on uh, the jazz session. Night. Um, so if you want to hear an interview with Theo, that's in the archives talking about different stuff, but uh, one person from this record. Uh, Aaron, is there anything else you want to, to say listen about to that? this one? Yeah, uh, I I have heard this once, but it has been since it came out uh, that I that I have listened to it. So I, I'd like to dig back into it as well. Yeah, I guess I would say just one other thing, which is that he has a handful of other records and they're all very good, but I think they're all kind of different. Um, sometimes I have this. Well, you know, I think that's the way people learn about new music. A lot of times is they find one thing that they like and then they'll try to branch off from that into other things. Um, but just like, you know, similarly to like the miles catalog, like if you listen to just cause one miles record sounded a certain way, doesn't necessarily mean that the next one will, I think to another, like maybe smaller extent, that's true about Ben Monder stuff too, you know, because he's got different personnel and it's not always the same kind of thing, you know, and he sort of spreads out the records like two, three to five years between some of these records, which were some people is a long time. I think that that's uh, kind of because he goes through these different periods, you know, but um, no, I think he's great uh, having, there was a story that I'm not allowed to tell according to Jason, but um, it was really cool getting to getting to meet the people in the band. And they were all just really nice to us at school and treated us like future colleagues, which I remember feeling really great about at the time. So think that's always another notch in someone's cap when they can be a great uh, role model too you know when the, when the musicians are nice that's not always the case so we had a great experience with these guys and really appreciated it yeah there's no there's no paywall high enough to allow the story that you asked oh, me about beforehand no, that's that's only certain websites <laughs> post that sort of um yeah at some point there'll be a thousand dollar a month membership to the jazz session and for those people aaron aaron will drive to your place and he will tell Absolutely. you yeah the stories that he can't tell anywhere else uh that's aaron stabell uh he has been on uh, multiple uh, bonus episodes of the jazz session and uh a regular episode as well uh and will be on another regular episode in the not too distant future aaron thanks for being here Thanks. Can I mention my new book for drum set that people might be interested in? Uh, no. Okay. Uh, yes, of course you can. Well, I have this new book for drum set that if you're uh, if you have a younger drummer in your life, you might want to check out. It's called Inspired by Masters, and it's eight solos for people who are just getting started playing jazz drums but have some experience as a drummer or as a percussionist. And you can get it at the easiest way is a bit lie link bit dot lie bit dot ly slash inspired by masters you can get it today very cool and i will put that link in the show one notes of, of those show. yeah i heard one of you you played one of those on uh tiktok or instagram or something and yeah it was a lovely little little like etude sort of thing it was you know it had nice structure and was melodic and it was really cool i, I enjoyed just like listening to it you know, thank you. I just posted a new I, I, one on the TikTok right before this interview. So check that out too. Oh, lovely. I'll check Aaron's, it out. Aaron Stabell drums on TikTok. Very cool. And uh, Patrick McCurry also here. Uh, Patrick, thank you very much for being here. Oh, happy to be here. Thank you, Jason. 
And I'm Jason Crane, and this is The Jazz Session. Uh, if you are a member and you're hearing this before anybody else, thank you so much for being a member. Uh, I really, really, really appreciate it, this show. It's, as I said on the, well, what is right now the most recent episode? I'm not exactly sure when you're listening to this, but on the most recent episode of the show, the surprisingly, one of the more expensive parts of The Jazz Session is hosting the massive archive, uh, the 15-year archive, because... Uh, there are hundreds and hundreds of downloads a day of episodes, and that's a lot of bandwidth, and that's what costs the money. So uh, it's not even so – I mean, there are many gigabytes worth of audio up there, but it's not even so much the storage of them somewhere as the fact that they keep uh, being downloaded. So it's awesome that they keep being downloaded, but it costs money, and you folks who are members are what help keep the archives alive. And that, to me, is kind of the most important part of the jazz session, the fact that it exists as this – archive of the last 15 years of the music so thank you very much for your support uh, more of these coming up uh, i really enjoy when the three of us get together so we'll we'll do some more uh, it takes us about six months to figure out a topic and then once we do uh, it usually doesn't take too long until we're actually recording so we'll uh, we'll bang another one of these out pretty soon hope you're doing well thanks so much for listening lots of great main shows coming up too and i appreciate you being there for all of it until next time thanks Everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.